0: This is Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. I'm Arian Baloo. I am a child of immigrants, if the combination of my name and accent didn't make that pretty obvious. My parents were born and raised in India, and they came to the States for graduate school in the 90s. They worked their butts off, so I get to make podcasts for a living. Hey, Emma. Hey, Emma. I know you're listening. We are still on for dinner tomorrow. Now, in the broad strokes, the story of my parents isn't unique. People born in India, Korea, Mexico, Ireland, El Salvador, Ethiopia, Germany, Egypt, name a country, and there are people from there who have immigrated to the U.S. and to Virginia. They're folks we see in the streets, friends we welcome into our homes. They're me, and they might well be you. Now, nationally, immigration at the southern border is always a really hot topic. But this week, I want to talk about the immigrants, both documented and undocumented, who make up the Commonwealth. Some of them came here for the economic opportunity, and others are fleeing from some pretty bad situations back at home.
1: With the Afghan resettlement, people, like, they ran for their lives, were desperate to get in on a plane, and the next thing they know they're in Virginia with, like, no processing time for all of that.
0: That's Harriet Korr executive director of the International Rescue Committee in Virginia. In the second half of the show, we'll hear more from her on the difficult process for refugees coming into the state. First, though, I'll bring my conversation with Freddie Mejia. He's deputy director of policy at the Commonwealth Institute. That's a nonprofit that's focused on state-level policies that affect marginalized groups like immigrants in Virginia. He walks us through who immigrants are, where they're from, and how they fit into the larger tapestry of the Old
2: Dominion. I think it's important to kind of first lay out just the, the groundwork that, you know, immigrants have uh, very different experiences, right, based on their background, based on their immigration status, as well as their education, their opportunities uh, back from their home countries. But I mean, realistically, uh, immigrants are in every county in Virginia. They are neighbors, our classmates, our co-workers. I think that, you know, in Northern Virginia, there's a, a very strong... Central American, um, as well as uh, Ethiopian, Eritrean uh, community. Um, in Richmond here, we have a strong Mexican community. And, you know, even in Harrisonburg, like there's, there's areas of strong immigrant um, communities that um, maybe people might not think of when they think of uh, immigrant communities here in Virginia. You know, immigrants are everywhere in Virginia. They are CEOs, you know, at the other end of the spectrum as uh, low-wage workers, that's kind of a big, <laughs> The big swath of immigrant uh, life here in Virginia. Could
0: you put some numbers to
2: that? Uh,
0: Virginia's population is what, like eight, nine million folks. How many of those people are immigrants, and where are they?
2: Yeah, so in Virginia, approximately 1.1 million Virginians are were born from in another country, so uh, they're immigrants. And when thinking about where immigrants come from, El Salvador, which is actually uh, where my background is. Is the largest nation of people from a different country, with ten percent of all immigrants in Virginia being from El Salvador. The next largest country is India, with about nine percent. That's me. <laughs> uh, Mexico at six percent, and then Vietnam and China are at around four point four percent. But again, you know there are just very um, really immigrants from all points of the, of the world here in Virginia, and a large Central American population, uh, a large Ethiopian and Eritrean population uh, in Northern Virginia, and in every county, really, in Virginia, there are definitely groups of immigrants.
0: So there's obviously sort of a humanitarian aspect to the immigration issue. These are people who live here, we should care about them. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of the economic effect of having all these immigrants in the state. You know, what does that look like?
2: So it's it's very apparent that the immigrant population is very active in our labor force and they typically have higher uh, participation rates in the labor force uh, compared to our you know, U.S. born Virginians. And, you know, not only that, there is a really just strong sense of entrepreneurial spirit with the immigrant population in Virginia. There was estimates that um, immigrant entrepreneurs generated about 2.5 billion with a B. Uh, dollars in business revenue here in Virginia and that 19 percent of all Virginia businesses were owned by immigrants in 2019. So almost one in five uh, Virginia businesses are owned by immigrants and so you know this is a really strong uh, showing uh, that immigrants are not only you know part of our workforce and participating in that way but are creating businesses and creating opportunities here in Virginia.
0: It's interesting to hear you talk about all that. Um, I feel like there can be a narrative that, you know, immigrants are taking from the system and not kind of putting into it. But what does it actually look like for for when it comes to immigrants and taxation, you know, what are they putting in?
2: Yeah. So, you know, immigrants in Virginia, they pay taxes, right? And that's across the board, regardless of status, Uh, undocumented folks also pay taxes, state and local taxes. Um, And here in Virginia, Immigrants as a whole pay about four point one billion dollars in state and local taxes. Uh, that's through um, owning houses or just paying for groceries. Uh, that's how they contribute to taxes. And and in fact, many undocumented folks um, pay taxes on their income through things called ITIN numbers or immigration uh, immigrant tax identification numbers. So um, many folks are paying into our, our uh, tax system and um, are not going to see a dime of that unfortunately um, in terms of uh, Medicare or retirement uh, due to their status. On top of that, you know, immigrant families and immigrants in particular have a huge spending power here in Virginia. They have a $34.3 billion in spending power um, and that's being pumped into their local economies through their communities. Um, so needless to say, Immigrants in Virginia have such a really just a big impact on on the economy of the state as a whole, but also local communities.
0: Maybe an odd question, but um, what would things look like without the presence of these immigrants in the state? What would that change?
2: It would be a very uh, interesting <laughs> experiment. And I think something that we're unfortunately seeing in Florida uh, with recent proposals there to make it very difficult for uh, especially undocumented uh, individuals to to work and you know live in in the state. Uh, so you know I think it's definitely an interesting experiment um, if that were to 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 see what's happening. Um, I obviously think that immigrants provide such a rich cultural as well as economic contribution to the state. We also think of the healthcare workforce here in Virginia. We are really hurting for doctors, for nurses, for dentists, uh, mental health professionals combined with the fact that we do have an aging population. So I think it would really behoove uh, Virginia to, to be welcoming towards uh, immigrants, both those who have already, you know, have those um, credentials in their home countries, but also uh, some who are maybe younger and are, are trying to pursue opportunities. And that's why policies like in-state tuition equity to make sure that that folks uh, who come to this country and, and live in Virginia and have gone to Virginia public schools have the opportunities for a higher education uh, without having to pay just you know ex- extreme numbers um, as an international student. So our other interview for this episode will focus
0: kind of on the specific uh, experience of refugees, which is its own can of worms. But what are some of the issues that immigrants in the state face?
2: Often the issues that you'll hear are no different than other folks, right? So housing, uh, especially in uh, very populated areas like Richmond and Northern Virginia, and particularly you know those who uh, are undocumented often have uh, less protections. They are they have more limited options when it comes to housing. They can be subject to price gouging or to uh, lack of protections, uh, re- like repairs and things of that nature uh, from their landlords due to both just the fear of being found um, and just not knowing what what types of rights. Uh, they they should be entitled to. Another area that the Commonwealth Institute and partners have uh, really been working on is healthcare. We are just coming out of this COVID pandemic. And I think that was very important times to have health coverage. And as folks are, you know, really thinking through the importance of healthcare and the impacts of the pandemic era protections that are ending, there's a group a population here in Virginia that never had access to health coverage during this time and those uh, are undocumented folks so you know undocumented folks they can't get Medicaid they can't buy their coverage on the ACA marketplace they're often working uh, low-wage jobs that aren't going to offer them health coverage through their employment so you know I I love numbers so I'm gonna share some numbers here here in Virginia about five percent u.S born population are uninsured of naturalized citizens here in Virginia are uninsured. That means people who were born in another country came here and are now citizens. 33% of non-citizens in Virginia are uninsured. Those are folks that they include legally residing folks, but also undocumented folks um, and everything else in between, right? And then finally, it's estimated that 58% of undocumented people in Virginia do not have health coverage. And so that's, that's a problem. Wow,
0: yeah. You mentioned before we started taping um, uh, some work that you guys do that has to do with undocumented children. Could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, um, so this is a policy that the Commonwealth Institute and partners we affectionately call uh, Cover All Kids, and it's basically a push for the state to create a health coverage program available to undocumented immigrants' uh, children between you know zero to eighteen to have health coverage if they come from a low-income family. So basically, they would have to meet every other eligibility criteria for Medicaid, uh, but the only thing that's stopping them from enrolling in Medicaid is their uh, immigration status. We're going to continue to work with Delegate uh, Kathy Tran, and we have been working with uh, Senator Jennifer McClellan, now Congresswoman McClellan, uh, to to push this forward. And, um, you know, we've been very excited about the outpouring of of, of support for this policy. Uh, it passed the Senate and was included in the Senate budget this past year. Uh, unfortunately, it died in the House during its first committee hearing. But we're we're continuing to fight for that. And we're hoping that this upcoming year, it will remain a priority for health coverage and for healthcare uh, policy here in the state.
0: So kind of wrapping things up, putting it all together, um, this is obviously something that, you know, you care a lot about. For somebody listening to this, uh, who's sort of interested in Virginia politics, why should they care
2: as well? I think about immigration in a community context. And so we have immigrants around us. They're here. How could we best integrate this population and provide resources for this population so they can thrive along with us? There's plenty of immigrant children who need access to health care, to uh, education, just like any other child. And in 20 years' time, if I need a doctor, I'm hopeful that there will be enough doctors and maybe that doctor would have been an immigrant at one point. So I think it's, it's just really important that we provide the resources and opportunities for our, our immigrant neighbors because at the end of the day, we will rely on each other. And the immigrant population just provides uh, so much, you know, and we talked about economic contributions but cultural contributions as well. And, you know, I think it's the very least we can do to make sure that they have appropriate supports and appropriate access to essentials, um, just like anyone else in the state.
0: That was Freddie Mejia, Deputy Director of Policy at the Commonwealth Institute. We've got some interesting stats from the Institute that we've linked in the show notes. Now stick around. In the second half of the show, we'll drill down from the immigrant experience to the lives of refugees. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. You can always find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are served up. Go ahead and subscribe. And if you'd like, leave us a nice review while you're there. Bold Dominion is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective. That's online at virginiaaudio.org. Check out all the podcasts from the collective. From science, to history, to music, to community affairs we amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. Now, the term refugee has a pretty specific legal definition. To gain refugee status, a person has to have fled their home country by crossing an international border, and they have to prove that they faced persecution due to, quote, race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group, end quote they can only gain legal refugee status after meeting both of those criteria. And that's just the beginning. Refugees then face the State Department's vetting process just to get a chance to come to the U.S. Once they've made it, there are six refugee resettlement agencies across Virginia. They help people from Harrisonburg to Newport News. These agencies work with the State Department to get recently arrived refugees on their feet. One of those groups is the International Rescue Committee, which has offices in both Charlottesville and Richmond. This week, Bold Dominion producer Alana Bittner sat down with Harriet Kaur, the executive director of the IRC in Virginia, to learn how resettlement works. Kaur starts off by explaining what happens between a person gaining refugee status and actually arriving in the U.S.
1: For someone to enter the U.S. with refugee status, people usually go through an 18- to 24-month vetting process. Most of them have been in displacement the average time of displacement is like 17 years. They've often been displaced for a very long time. It couldn't even be like a full generation before they get the opportunity to apply to come to like a third country. It's very long. They're vetted. Like they have three in-person interviews during the time. And it's also of all the people who are, who have refugee status around the world, only 1% of them ever get the chance to resettle in a third country. And then you know, traditionally, half of those have come to the U.S., so we resettle like one half of 1% of the world's refugees each year.
3: After going through that intensive vetting process and then maybe being um, accepted, like once a refugee arrives in the U.S., what does those first 90 days look like?
1: That's really, really standard. So the State Department's program, is it's like a 90-day resettlement. They give us a flat amount of money per person to do that. But it's very much focused on finding housing, getting people to a health screening, social security numbers, registering children in school. And then pretty quickly, as soon as those first kind of things get straightened out, it's all about job. You have to get a job (laughs) because there's sort of this expectation that refugees will be economically self-sufficient through earned income within like ideally like three to four months of arrival. So their uh, time when there's kind of cash assistance is pretty limited. They very quickly have to start earning income and being able to pay their rent and their other basic needs um, independently.
2: Mm.
3: That does feel like a very fast. It's really fast.
1: Yeah, and that's probably the fastest of any country that does that.
3: And then I was also curious, like how, if you could estimate, like, how expensive are these processes for someone, a re- person trying to re- resettle from another country to the U.S.? I know they have to pay for the airfare, for instance.
1: So the one thing, yeah, that's what we always say about the refugees, that it's very American that every refugee arrives in debt to the United States. But um, technically, they, um, well, it's not even technically, it's really, they they um, are loaned the cost of their airfare to get to the u.s and then they are they're supposed to pay it back within like the first five years that they're here so if you can imagine like like a big family like some some of the our, our families where they have like five six seven kids you know and how much like airfare from i don't know halfway around the world plus all those kids and everything i mean people Obviously, you could be paying back like ten, fifteen thousand dollars, and they're they're supposed to start paying the loan off uh, within like six months after they come.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. I had interned for a little bit at the yeah. IRC when I was at UVA, and it was like made a big impression to me, like how the speed at which people were expected to become self-sufficient after often really traumatizing experiences. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, there's, there's two schools of thought. I mean, one is yes, but keep in mind that the fastest I'd ever seen anybody come, it was at least three to four years, minimum of three years after they displaced. And those were Iraqis who were coming after the Iraq war. Most people, not to say they don't have trauma that they haven't experienced trauma through their experiences but it's usually not quite so fresh and but there's it, it's there's kind of two schools of thought on it. like one is people really should be able to come and learn English and kind of get their feet under them before they have to work but then there's another school of thought which is the best way to learn English and actually start figuring out your new community is to like have a job and learn from the other people you're working with. So mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, it's it, there's different points of view, but I think. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough and we do use like our, our largest source of like, you know, how we use the money that people donate to support our work is usually like kind of helping people with their rent until they can really get, get under their feet because the the money, the any government we have runs out really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, very short term. But we're also like really pushing for people to figure out how to become self-sufficient and kind of just start a more normal life. I wanted to
3: pivot to focus a little bit more specifically on Virginia. One thing that I do find interesting, the IRC, it has about 28 offices across the US, I believe, right? And right. some states don't have any, some just has one, but Virginia has two IRC offices. I was wondering what is the significance of that? Is there like, what makes Virginia a good state to have these offices and to welcome refugees?
1: It's funny, when I first came here to work, like that was every, anywhere I would speak, the first question would say, why Charlottesville? And, I, and what I said would say, say 13 years ago when I came like, it's still true now, which is Charlottesville has everything going for it. And there's only one negative. You know, we have great healthcare we have great schools, we have a welcoming community, there's lots of jobs, the negative is struggling with rental housing, um, mostly because, you know, Charlottesville, traditionally, so many of the student, UVA students live on the the public rental market, Um, and then we opened the office, so the Richmond office is technically a sub-office of Charlottesville, but we opened that office in 2015, so obviously, Virginia has, we're not one of, like, the top Three states or five states for refugee resettlement, but we—it's—it's um, it's a significant number of people coming in, uh, especially you know with all the the cultural diversity and ethnic diversity in Northern Virginia, and I think it's one of the things I really like because before I came to Virginia, I worked for IRC in in Georgia and Atlanta, and at that time, really all the all the resettlement in Georgia happened in Atlanta. It was very concentrated in the large urban area, and one of the things I really liked about Virginia was that we were resettling in these mid-sized cities like Roanoke and Harrisonburg and, and Hampton Roads and and stuff like that because I think those are really positive experiences for newcomers. You know, they can get their bearings and really figure out the. Like where they are, and they they tend to be safer areas, and they you know I think it's a really positive experience, and there also that the refugee resettlement program itself is more visible. You know, people are aware of it. People in will know there's you know refugees living here and have been, and I think just the opportunities for like integration into the the community as a whole are are just so much easier to affect in in a in a smaller size city like that.
3: I mean, to get a sense of the numbers here, I was curious, like specifically in Virginia about how many people are resettled in the state each year at this point.
1: I would say kind of historically about somewhere between like five and 6,000 spread across the state. I don't know because things with the Afghan evacuation and the numbers that we were resettling in 2021 and 2022, we took in... So, you know, I I think the numbers were way higher because of the the Afghan evacuation. That was something
3: I did want to touch on, and I know it will be hard to dive deep into this in our short period of time, but with the Afghan resettlement process that went on a couple of years ago, like how did the Virginia IRC offices react and adapt to like such large influx of people to resettle? Like what, how did that go down?
1: That was, that was um, pretty crazy. So that was uh, August, that took place in August 2021. And about 80,000 people were airlifted out of Afghanistan. About 65,000 of those came directly to the US. And pretty much everybody passed through Virginia because every the, the flights all came into Dallas. And so Virginia had a really key key role to play in that and then you might remember like the original location people were being processed through fort lee they later over time they kind of were sending people they pulled together a whole series of military facilities across the country they were kind of all over the place but they were still entering through through Dallas, I think they they were kind of processing people and then moving them on to other locations. Um, And that was a huge operation. And IRC, actually, we were one of two, two national networks that stood up to actually work on the basis. So our local office responded immediately because we sent a bunch of our staff members down to work with the very first groups at Fort Lee because it was such, well, it was like a week's notice. It was like, uh, we need like 100 volunteers down here at Fort Lee like on um, Wednesday. It, it was kind of like that. And we also helped uh, hire a lot and uh, onboard a lot of uh, interpreters like Dari and Pashto interpreters to work on the bases and kind of got involved like that. And we just had a lot of staff we deployed for like two or three weeks to go help out. I mean, just Charlottesville, we were settled of like 335 Afghan evacuees in, t- in addition to refugees. So that year, which is, well, last year it was 2022. Um, we were settled in Charlottesville, like over 500 people in one year. And, you know, keeping in mind, like Charlottesville's what, 120,000 people. There was, it was quite a lot and it was really daunting. And it was extremely difficult also because one of the things I realized is like, I think a lot of people commonly, like they think, refugee resettlement is like an emergency program but it isn't it's actually the it's it's called a planned arrival it's it's uh people have been out there they're processing for years it's all very well planned we know when they're coming it's it's, it's a very scheduled program and then we were not equipped to handle emergent like emergency in huge numbers we didn't really have a way and and people were coming like they they would we would get a call saying, we put some people on the van at Fort Lee. They'll be there in an hour. Go pick them up. You know, I would get these calls, like, on a Saturday. Nobody's answering their phone, and they're halfway there already. Go get them. And, you know, we had, of course, didn't know who these people were, like where they were, you know. So it that, it that kind of operation, which I think if you talk to people, like like an, like an a FEMA or an agency where they, they have protocols for that, or the Red Cross, it was really new for us. The one comment I was going to add was, you know, we had just talked about Trauma, but when we talk about people with very, very fresh trauma, that was the other part with the Afghan resettlement because people like they ran for their lives, were desperate to get in on a plane, and the next thing they know, they're in Virginia with like no processing time for all of that. So that was another, you know, element of the challenges yeah. of of that resettlement.
3: Wow, yeah, that's so. That's so intense. Yeah. I know, like, of course, living in Charlottesville and knowing that we were like, there's, I feel like there's a big movement in like getting ready to welcome these new people here. But yeah. I feel like I also didn't realize how much of a big role Virginia played in that whole yes. process.
1: Well, there's, you know, the Afghan community in Northern Virginia is huge. Mm. It's enormous. It always has been because so many of the Afghans that worked with the American government or the American military all had friends and they just really gravitated to the dc area and outside of dc the both charlottesville and richmond we've just historically always had a lot of afghans and they came where they had friends right people gravitated to where they had relatives or friends or they knew people and so so it's interesting we already had a significant afghan community we have a much larger afghan community now
3: my Final question I had, as I did, it does seem like kind of important to mention, is kind of like touching on refugees' impact on the Virginia economy. But I feel like I want to preface this in a way that somehow sometimes this question can rub me the wrong way because it feels like this emphasis constantly on refugees' impact on the economy can sometimes sound as though that's like the only justification for. There's
1: there's actually a lot of good information out there. You know, like this idea that immigrants drag down the economy is like it it there's actually you can't prove it in any data in fact like immigrants often sp- spur eco- economic growth because since it's so much harder for them to get into traditional occupations they tend to be small business owners and entrepreneurs and things like that i mean in Charlottesville specifically i mean there's a lot of very entry level positions like in hotels and restaurants and tourism industry that and other things too in like uva and we have a lot of people who work at the hospital and things like that. There's a lot of positions that they would struggle to fill, it, you know. And then there's also like during the, the last administration, there was this, um, they they tried to actually like prove that, you know, refugees are a drag on the economy. And they actually like, actually I think it was HHS, somebody that crunched all the numbers and showed that, you know, something like within five years of arrival, most refugees have paid back the costs of their Bringing them here and within 10 years, they're positively, you know, they're paying taxes above and beyond, you know, within within a period of time, they're, they're net contributors to the economy. And and of course, the other thing is, we have an aging population, and we need more young workers. And this is one source of young workers. And young families coming in, or bringing younger people into the economy, that are going to support all the rest of us as we get as we age, age out of the labor force. But it's a really interesting question. Like, which is the lead indicator?
0: That was Harriet Corr, executive director of the IRC in Virginia. Thanks to her and Freddie Mejia for speaking with us today. My name is Arian Belou, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Our producer this week is the inimitable Alana Bittner. Find us online at bolddominion.org, and don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away. See you next time.
3: In the 1990s, the Virginia State Crime Lab was leading the DNA revolution. Admissible Shreds of Evidence is a new VPM podcast about 13 DNA exonerations and one of the lab's former top forensic analysts, Mary Jane Burton. She was celebrated as a hero for saving the evidence that cleared these men, but the truth of what was going on is much more complicated. Admissible Shreds of Evidence is available now wherever you listen to podcasts.